Welcome back to the Innovator Podcast, the female entrepreneur series that dives into the stories of how women founders tackled hardship and difficulties to ultimately find success. My name is Erica Sullivan, and I am the host of the Innovator Podcast, and today I'm welcoming Tamisha Sales. Tamisha is the owner and founder at Educational and Community Strategies. The mission of Education and Community Strategies is to reduce educational and community disparities by strengthening the ability of educators, school leaders, and mission-driven organizations to advance student achievement and community well-being. In her work, she helps organizations to recognize barriers to inclusion, performance, and engagement. Tamisha has over 14 years of experience in the nonprofit world and comes to the podcast today with a wealth of knowledge. Tamisha, welcome to the Innovator Podcast. Hi, Tamisha. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great. I am super excited to talk to you on the Innovator Podcast today because the world is in such a crazy place right now and has been for a while. So I think it is so important to sit down and have difficult conversations and take the opportunity to learn from one another. And you are coming to the podcast today with so much expertise. I am so excited to dive into. So what I'd love to do to start us off is I'd like for you to start us at the very beginning and talk to us about what your early life was like and how your story has evolved to get you where you are today. Okay, so I will not try to be too long-winded, but um, like you mentioned, I'm Tamisha Sales. I was born and raised in Alabama. I'm the youngest of five, and just to give you a little context of how I came to be, is I grew up in a household, the youngest of five, and although we lived in the house, we had enough. We didn't have a lot, but we had enough. And although we appeared middle class on the outside, you know, inside where we're struggling, we had to stretch every penny, every nickel. And sometimes we did not have enough to even stretch. So, but nevertheless, I would go to school, neat, clean and ready to learn. And I was socialized with everyone. And, um, but no one never, ever knew that we were struggling inside our house financially. So early on, I, I learned how to not to judge a book by its cover, you know, so to speak. And there's more than individuals that meet the eye. Um, I like to explain to people that I often consider myself living dual identities, you know. Um, At school, I appeared one way, but at home, we were struggling. So it's always been an interest of mine to learn um, more about people, their behavior, because I know it's more than meets the eye. And I also observe how people were included, excluded excluded early on. So basically, um, I am an introvert at heart, but there are several instances as I look back over my life where I stepped outside of my introvertness to speak up to someone on the receiving end of unjust. So I'll give an example. One of my earliest memories was in elementary school. Now, I was born in the 80s. You know, I'm attending elementary school in the late 80s, early 90s. And where I live, we just did not have a homeless population. But it seemed um, one school year overnight, it was this brother and sister that came to our school. Literally, they appeared out of nowhere, you know, and they were stereotypically homeless. Literally, they had dirt under their nails, dirt on their face, clothes were tattered, um, hair was matted. It was almost like a textbook, you know, what you see in movies. And um, 
80s, 90s, schools didn't have a lot of resources because we did we just did not have homeless. You know, you have to go to a larger city to find homeless. And I remember this is probably second or third grade um, classmates making fun of the brother and sister. And they were they were like by themselves. The brother and sister huddle up because children wouldn't play with them. They were making fun of them, calling out their names like you smell, you know. And I remember thinking to myself, my heart was hurting physically. I felt pain for them. So I thought, you know what? You should be the one to go over there and befriend them. So I did. And eventually, in the weeks to come, other students will make friends with them. So early on, I know that's a long story, but all of my early life experiences led me to where I'm at today. I've had a career in nonprofit serving marginalized populations, and I co-founded Educational Community Strategies that work with schools and mission-driven organizations to strengthen their diversity and inclusion efforts. So that's really where I am today. It sounds like you have an absolute heart of gold, Tamisha. Thank you. Just from, I mean, I know I, I consider myself pretty introverted as well, and it is hard to step up for something that is wrong because, I mean, we're going to talk about it a little bit here in a moment. We're going to talk about the bystander effect. And it it's so hard to stand for stand up for stuff that you know is wrong because you don't want to you don't want to be that person. But to throw on top of that being introverted, you know, so you really, really don't yes. want to step outside. Yes, yes. But it's like um, you just kind of pop out of your shell when, you know, you feel you feel convicted, you know, you just, mm. you just speak up and you, you're fearless. And then you think when it's all over, like, wow, was that me? <laughs> Did I really speak up just now? And then it probably takes you a couple hours to calm down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you're like zapped of energy. You just want to, yeah, chill. Yep. I can, I can absolutely relate. So you talked a little bit about education and community strategies and how it kind of came into the picture. Um, I'd love it if you can talk a little bit more about this and then how you met Dr. Larry Collier. Okay, yeah. Um, so my entire career for nearly 20 years has been in a nonprofit sector. I've had many roles from a volunteer until leadership role. But, you know, along the way, I noticed inconsistencies in the nonprofit sector from the way certain, from as little as a way a client was greeted when they walked into the building um, until how we conducted community needs assessments and internally how hire and promotions were happening. And so, and by design, working in a nonprofit, you, one, of your, one of your job duties is to go out and form partnerships with organizations, other organizations. And so I reached out to a local school district, and that's where I met Dr. Larry Collier, who was an administrator at a local school district. And our nonprofit and the school worked together to serve students and their families. But over the course of you know many, many months, we would have casual conversations, and we would discuss inconsistencies, disparities that we have noticed, how students were learning. And there was a theme happening. We're like, oh, there's disparities in education, there's disparities in the communities, but if we all work together, we can close these gaps. And so instead of waiting on someone else to solve these problems, we we just decided, let's instead of talking about it, let's kind of be about it. And that's where we birthed educational community strategies. Um, and our mission there is to reduce these community and education disparities by working with the school leaders, working with nonprofit leaders, 
identifying unconscious bias, identifying, making them more inclusive and diverse. So that's how we birth our business. We like to call ECS. ECS. Okay. Got it. Yeah. That is, that's so fascinating how you guys met. I'm just, I'm kind of sitting and digesting because I think, I think education is such a huge piece in creating outstanding citizens, right? Education changes everything. And you have to think that it's not always through people's fault of their own. You know, they might have grown up in a household or gone to a school where education just wasn't a possibility, you know, so it's through no fault of their own. And I, I love that you guys saw that and said, okay, what can we do to change it? Yes. And we're, we're both called to education because, you know, my early life experiences were like, I made it, you know, I knew early on that, you know what, instead of getting frustrated at my situation, because my parents are doing the best they can, I have to receive a quality education and further my opportunity. So I know education is the key out of poverty cycle. I know education is the, the key out of so many cycles. But at the same time, there's um, systems and structures that may limit your education like you like you mentioned. And um, so, yes, education is, is the key. And you definitely got your education. You have a BS in psychology, a master's of education in adult education and training, and a PhD in education leadership. I mean, it's very obvious that you are <laughs> an expert in your field and very well educated. And I think there are so many different ways we could take this interview. Um, but I would love to talk about your education and maybe one thing that you learned during those many years of being educated that you think has served you well throughout your career? Yes, I am a learnaholic. Like I cannot get <laughs> enough of learning. Um, but one important thing, and um, you know, there's some things that you do not learn in the textbook, but one of the most important things I've learned in the textbook throughout my educational experience is the term or the concept of cognitive dissonance. So in short, I'll not get into the scientific definition, but in short, you you must we must become uncomfortable to learn. So if you're not uncomfortable, you're not learning. You're not learning. So um, that's why I enjoy, you know, you begin when you learn that the importance of cognitive dissonance, you begin to appreciate appreciate differing differing perspectives, other people's opinions. Um, I enjoy reading. I enjoy watching movies or enjoying to listen to different music um, because I like to learn. And I love when someone disagree with me or challenge me because you have to be uncomfortable. You have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable if you really won't change. So that's one of the most important lessons I learned in school that I, I take with me everywhere. It's okay to be uncomfortable. You're learning. That is a fantastic answer to this question. Yeah, so um, I encourage everyone, if they're a little bit uncomfortable, just settle into that, you know? What's the worst that can happen other than being uncomfortable, you know? So, mm -hmm. and, and the women who are on this podcast and the women who listen to this podcast are entrepreneurs or women who are interested in entrepreneurship. So this should not seem like a very foreign concept to them because in order to be an entrepreneur, it means you made yourself very uncomfortable to make something happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you do not need all the answers. Just go with it. You know, mm -hmm. just go with it. Yes. 
I'd love to talk a little bit about the bystander effect because you have an article on your website that perfectly breaks down the psychological concept about how people are more likely to take action in a crisis where there are few or no other witnesses present. Um, and you are more of an expert on this topic than I am. So I'd love it if you can break down the concept and how it plays into maybe the social unrest that's happening today. Okay. So um, if you do not mind, I would like to just provide a little backdrop of how this term um, kind of became propelled into the, the media. Um, mm -hmm. Queens, New York, 1964. There's a young lady by the name Kitty Genovese. She was returning home from work and she was approached by a man with a knife. And so, of course, like anyone else, she's frightened and she started running towards the front door of her apartment. It's nighttime, it's early in the morning. Um, so she ran towards the front door of her apartment building. The man grabbed and stabbed her while she screamed. Fortunately, a neighbor uh, yelled at the window and said, let that girl go, you know, so the, the suspect fled. Genevieve, she was weak from the attack, so she was able to call to the back of her apartment building. But unfortunately, the attacker returned about 10 minutes later, and he further stabbed her and assaulted her and stole her money. And she was later found by this neighbor who screamed for someone to call the police. The police arrived. Genevieve died on the way to the hospital in the ambulance. But at the time of her death, all the news came. And it reported the news stories that were in the media was reporting that there are dozens of neighbors who failed to step in. They were watching, they heard, but no one stepped in. So this is how it was played up in the media. But it was later um, supported that that wasn't actually true. But that's what caught the media attention, that all these bystanders were watching and no one did anything. So that's where the term Boston effect really became a spotlight. And later, some social psychologists um, popularized the concept and they did further studies. Um, and, it, and it was supported, you know, that the bystander effects happen when there's two factors happening. You know, when people are present, others are discouraged to step in when they see something happening. And two factors attribute to the bystander effect. So one is the diffusion of responsibility. So the more onlookers there are, the less personal responsibility we feel. We think, hey, this person is in need, but someone else should help, not me. But then there's a the social influence factor where individuals watch the behavior of those around them. Like you look for social cues. And if no one else is acting, you think, why should I? No one else is helping. No one else is stepping in. Why should I? So the above center effect can also help, like we have entrepreneurs in the audience and the workplace. So um, that's what um, made me, you know, motivate me to write this article because I was helping organizations. And when you talk one-on-one -on -one with employees, they notice all these things happen in the workplace, but no one ever speaks up. So that's what um, kind of was my motivation in writing this piece because it happens when we fail to step in and stop a coworker from, you know, doing something that may get themselves fired. Or when we walk past a hazard, hazardous situation on the street and we do not say anything. So the bystander effect happens every day in our daily lives and we may not realize it, that we miss opportunities to step in and help someone else. I'm thinking about social influence when you kind of broke that down and I went to school for studying communication. So it was everything from 
strategic communications all the way through corporate communications and like what you can do in the workforce. And one of the things I studied was, I, I can't remember the name of the study and you might know because I think it's pretty, um, it's pretty famous, but there were a bunch of people who came into a room and they thought they were waiting for a study to start. So they were all sitting and filling out the paperwork. And what they had is there were a few people in the audience who were actors. And every time a ding went off, they all stood up. And then mm -hmm. they all sat back down. And it was very, it only took one or two times for the people who weren't the actors to join in because they didn't want to be the odd ones out in the room. Yes. And I just thought that was so fascinating. That's powerful right there. Like that's so powerful. Like psychology is amazing. Yes, we can train our brains. We can retrain our brains. So it's never too late to start learning new ways of doing things. But yeah, that was the first thing that kind of popped into my mind. I mean, humans are such fascinating creatures to like study about in our minds and how we operate. It's just, it's very fascinating to me. So I don't mind getting off on tangents and <laughs> <laughs> there's other things you want to bring into the picture. Well, um, I would um, just to connect uh, the Boston effect to what's happening in our world today, all this unrest, social unrest. I feel like um, the Boston effect, although it's still happening in some aspects, people are standing by, not participating in protests or or turning the channel or whatever they're whatever the case may be. I feel like. The Boston effect is a precursor to protests. Mm -hmm. it's, it's what happens before the protest. It's all those missed opportunities that we failed to step in. Finally, it all came to a head and protests erupt. So how many times do we hear stories in the news about someone being treated unfairly or maybe in our own workplace, our own own lives, and we fail to step in? And so we all could take a moment just to reflect the times when we heard but we felt like that wasn't our our battle or our root place to step in and speak up for someone else so i feel like the the boston effect publishing that article is timely because maybe if a neighbor was looking at the window with kitty they could have prevented her death maybe someone could say ma'am there's a gentleman following you or even stop the gentleman if they noticed that he was following kitty to her apartment if someone would have spoken up and just called the, the attacker out, like, sir, leave her alone before it happened, maybe her death could have been prevented. So maybe if we would step in when we see unjust in our own lives, um, we can prevent someone from being harmed, potential harm. Yeah. So, yes. When you think about missed opportunities, well, that could have just been an easy conversation that you decided not to have because it made you feel uncomfortable, which is what we were talking about before. Um, I think that plays into it as well. And I, I completely agree with everything you're saying. I think you are, I think you're spot on. I give another example, me, a little introvert. Um, I'm leaving the office early one day. It was like a Friday and I was leaving the office about three o'clock and I was like, yes, I'm going to make it home early and I'm away home. I'm driving up a four-lane highway and there's a median a wide strip of you know grass and flowers dividing the highway and northbound and southbound and a car was headed my direction like coming at me i'm headed northbound the car's coming southbound on my side of the road and i'm thinking 
oh no, it's someone's driving down the wrong side of the road, like speeding, like out of control car. And it, I noticed it's a, I pulled over to Dodge and it's everyone else is busy, you know, everyone else pull over. But everyone else immediately got back on the road as soon as the car passed, you know, like kept driving northbound. And I thought, oh goodness, someone's in danger. For like a split second, I was like battling myself. Do I turn around? Do I help? Because I noticed every single car behind me and every single car in front of me was they picked up and they were headed northbound. And so I thought, okay, introvert, turn your car, do a U-turn and follow that car. And so I did that against all my nature, like all my instinct. And so I turned around and I was going southbound again and the car had pulled over to the shoulder and the door was open and I pulled in behind the car as a young girl. And she was like, I don't know what happened. I looked up and I was on the wrong side of the road and I just called my grandmother and I called the police. So I'm dialing 911. I said, okay, I'll call 911. Are you okay? She said, I'm fine. I called 911. Police came. But uh, I noticed when I pulled over, another car did a U-turn and the lady put it behind me and she walked up and she said, I saw you turn around. So then I turned around too. And I thought, mm -hmm. oh, because I took the lead and she said, I'm a nurse. And I thought, oh my, if I wouldn't have stopped this nurse, she said, I was heading home early too. Like we both were trying to start our weekend early. But um, I just use that example as a Boston effect, you know, where I was watching for social cues, like any other car going to turn around and see if she's okay. You go to Misha. That's awesome. <laughs> I can I can take you down the road with a bunch of random stories, but I'll, we don't have enough time for that. So my family always tell me you should take your show on the road because you can tell me one thing and I'll I'll take you down with another conversation and you're like whoa 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 we're getting out of control now. Okay. No, I love it. I love it. Um, I think a lot of people right now are trying to figure out how to be a good ally. And you talk about an acronym CARE on your website, which um, there are so many good articles, very informative articles on there. Um, and I'd love to kind of walk through this acronym because I think it's an extremely powerful way for people to understand allyship if they're a little unsure of how to be a good ally. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for checking out our articles. But um, so many people are wondering how to be an ally and it's nothing that you can buy a book purchase a book or attend a course to be an ally it is earned you know so i i thought of the acronym um care to help people become an ally so the c in care um it stands for create trust first you must create trust and i define an ally as a trusted force of good so Earning trust requires that you prove yourself, even at the face of risk, that you are who you say you are, that you live up to the values you boast, you know, and you walk the walk, but you also talk the talk. And um, so create trust. So if you value everyone is equal, you must also walk the walk and you got to show it even if it's at risk you know maybe you're the only one speaking up that's okay so create trust next is act you've got to be pro proactive and reactive when you're being becoming an ally so the proactive part of um, the a means that when you see systems and practices um, that are unfair you've got to uh, do something about them 
you got to plan ahead, restructure, realign. Also, you have to react. And that's when, in a moment, if you hear someone being called outside their name or treated unfairly, you have to react to that. You have to call it out. So that's part of being an ally. you got to be proactive and reactive. The next in care, so we explain C, A, R. That stands for recognize. No one knows everything. And that's okay. You've got to be uncomfortable. Recognize that. that it's okay not to have the answer. It is okay to say the wrong thing. At least you tried. At least you, you made an effort. But you've got to be willing to recognize that you do not know everything and that's okay. But you also got to recognize that you must do some work. You must be willing to do the work and not depend on someone else to teach you. You know, in other words, it's okay to go to someone and say, how can I help? You know, and it's okay to um, grab a book, attend an event you never went to before, or even tell people, like, I don't know the correct term to use. Can you help me? So you have to recognize that what you do not know and seek the answers to find them. Then finally, exit your comfort zone. Exit your comfort zone. Allies are willing to be criticized by peers, by family members, by coworkers. You must be willing to be criticized when you're challenging the status quo, when you're challenging old habits. Some people may feel like you're changing into someone else, like you, you're metamorphosizing, like you're you know, changing to someone else. But no, this is part of growing and developing. You must exit your comfort zone. And you may lose friends. You may gain new friends. You may hang around less with people that you in the past would have been friendly with, um, or you may decide to take your business elsewhere. You just got to exit your comfort zone. So create trust, act, recognize, and exit your comfort zone. I think we need to make giant flyers of these and email to anyone who listens to the podcast who wants a daily reminder, because I think that's fantastic. I think it's such a great way to like, to be mentally aware and cognizant of okay, act, recognize, you know, I mean, all these things are so beneficial. And I think it's important to have them together because I know there are times where I have reacted to situations that make me really upset for someone else, but I I need to recognize what I didn't know and maybe how I could handle it better in the future, if that's making any sense. Absolutely. That's, yes, that's beautiful. (laughs) That's part of learning and growing that's just beautiful. Yeah, that's called growth, you know, when you recognize. Yeah, you're spot on. So it's okay to fail in a moment, you know, like fail to act in a moment. You, you not intentionally, you're not intentionally failing to act, but you just did not know in that moment the ways you could act. So absolutely acceptable and beautiful. Yes. I think I'm one of those people who wants to know everything. And I I, I'm like more scared of what I don't know than like finding out stuff that I might not want to, you know, like if that makes any sense. I think there's a quote that goes around it too. It's like, I'm more fearful of what I don't know than what I have the opportunity to learn. And again, yeah. I just completely misquoted that. But I think that's where my head <laughs> is, is that if I have the opportunity to like educate myself, it's only going to make the world around me a better place. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm like that too. It takes practice. Like you just will not wake up with anything. It takes practice. You will just not wake up overnight being perfect and reacting and being proactive. It takes practice. And I'm the person who's hindsight. I'm the person who's saying, oh, I should have said that. 
oh, I, I missed that. Or I should have, you know, I, I beat myself up sometimes thinking you failed to act or you didn't speak up. Or you had the opportunity or you said the wrong thing. And so sometimes we're our own worst critic. You know, mm -hmm. the other person may be viewing us as an awesome person. But to ourselves, we think, oh, man, I really dropped the ball on that one. I cannot tell you how many times in my life I have done that. Come to find out the other person on the other end of the conversation thought nothing of it. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. goodness. Like, I will lose sleep over it. I'm thinking I toss and turn. <laughs> and the other person, I sleep, sleep with family. And when I go back to them, I say, oh, I didn't mean to come across rude or anything. What are you talking about? They say, <laughs> oh, when I said, no, no way. I didn't think anything of it. Oh, okay. So I have kind of a fun question that I love to ask everyone, but I think it is so fascinating to learn about what it's like a day in the life of an entrepreneur. So I ask everyone to walk us through a normal day in their life, if there even is such a thing <laughs> as a normal day. Sure. So as an entrepreneur, I do not have a fancy office suite. <laughs> I have a home office but a day in the life. So I'll wake up around 5.30 before my boys and I take from like 5.30 to 7 or 6.45, depends how late they're sleeping. And I love to read, just have a moment to myself with some black coffee. I feel like I'm most productive in that one hour. So I can read an article, I can read just random anything. It could be like anything. <laughs> I love to read during that time because I know once my day gets started, I will not be able to read. Or it could be responding to emails that I kind of put off like the day before, not responding to. So that first hour of the day is for me. And then I get breakfast going for my boys and um, I clock into my office, but I have an open door policy. Um, before when the boys were in school, I'll work, you know, office hours. Now it's open door policy. So I have to stop along the way to fix breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I have to stop along the way to have a little play date with the boys, but they are considerate. So they will knock before entering. And I'm a terrible mom or I feel guilty because they spend a lot of time on their devices <laughs> or in front of the television. So, and then life is just try to hold office hours, respond to calls and emails but uh, do mommy duty at the same time. So multitasking. Mm -hmm. And then I put them to bed and I try my best not to open back up work stuff, but it, I do it sometimes and I do it until I go to sleep. So <laughs> I need to work on balancing my time and home work life balance. But yeah, it's kind of over the place right now because, mm -hmm. you know, I used to send the boys to grandparents and have a play day, but now we're just all here together. Mm -hmm. But it's cool. We're making it work. <laughs> I was going to say, you need to give yourself more credit because I know so many women I work with that have young kiddos at home who are working from home, their spouse is working from home, and they have kids running around, and they're trying yes. to homeschool, and they're trying to feed them. And Yes. <laughs> it is a lot. You need to give yourself more credit because I am sure you are doing more than enough. Well, thank you. I hope so. And the boys are not complaining. And yes, our father works all the time. So it's, yes. We're making it though. I'm I'm blessed and happy to be in this position. So yeah, we're all healthy. Yes. Oh, I was about to say. I read something the other day that was like, your family might be driving you crazy, but hey, guess what? They're healthy enough to drive you crazy. So yes, 
great. Thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great way to keep your mind on straight when you've been quarantined with your loved ones for months. <laughs> yes. So you mentioned that you love to read in the morning. So what is a book, a resource, or a podcast that you love and want to share with the audience? Yeah. So right now I'm really heavy on the podcast Cold Switch by NPR. Mm-hmm. And so that's if you want to get into like um, just different perspective from different cultures, Cold Switch is a pretty easy listen. And then a book that I always share with individuals who would like to be become an ally um, is Evicted by Matthew Desmond. Now, this is an older book. It may have been published 10 or so years ago. And Matthew Desmond, um, this book came to, was birthed from his graduate studies. Like he was just um, maybe his dissertation, but he he's a social worker, but he chronicled the lives of eight families in Milwaukee and their housing, their housing issue. So you do not have to be a housing person to appreciate this, but the way he written this book, you feel like you're in, you're part of the story. He has um, interviews with families, but it's kind of like a cycle of poverty, but it, it provides a, a picture of how some people are in poverty and they're not okay with it. It's just the way the systems are structures. They can't get out of it. So if you want to become an ally, it will increase your awareness of how you can support individuals who may need to have someone speak on their behalf. They need a louder voice in theirs. So it's a really cool book, Evicted by Matthew Desmond. So Fantastic. I'll be sure to put both of those in the show notes. I am definitely interested in both of those. I didn't even know NPR had another show. I feel like they have like a dozen now. <laughs> yes, yes. And they're also great. I love um, How I Built This. Yes, I love that too. Lastly, where can the audience find you if they want to connect with you? You can find me on the web, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Educational and Community Strategies. Um, and of course, I'm on LinkedIn. My personal page is Tamisha Sales. Um, my first and last name. So I would love to connect. Yep, absolutely. And we'll put those in the show notes as well. So it's easy for people to connect with you. But Tamisha, thank you so much for coming on today and taking the time to have a conversation about so many fascinating psychology terms and, um, you know, share personal stories and everything like that. But thank you so much. <laughs>